Offer up to God all within your heart that you desire and need as it relates to the kingdom and his will. And then I will lead us in a corporate prayer. Will you now pray with me? Our great God and Redeemer, we thank you for the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who by him we might come as children, beloved children in your courts, even now, to ask of you that you, according to your will, may grant according to us. And so we thank you, O Lord, for the Son, who has given us great and humble access before your throne. We pray, O Lord, for our earthly kingdom. We think of our own country that we ourselves reside in. We think of our federal government this morning. We pray, O Lord, for the Biden administration, for our Congress and Supreme Court. We pray, O Lord, that you give our federal government wisdom that they might govern us according to your will according to your word, that they might act honorably in our nation before us. We pray, O oh Lord, for, in this same regard, revival in our country. We pray that you would raise up men, O oh Lord, to preach your gospel, to preach it faithfully to the ends of the earth, but also, O oh Lord, within our own country and our own country well. We pray that you raise up men to be missionaries and preachers from our seminaries. We think of Reform Seminary, Covenant Seminary, Greenville Seminary, Westminster Seminary, and many others who have maintained a faithful witness to the gospel as it relates to our Reformed heritage. We thank you, O Lord, for these seminaries, and we pray, O Lord, that as they continue to raise up men for the next generation, that they would do so in a manner that honors your scripture. We pray, O oh Lord, for the various heads of these seminaries. Uh, we think of Ligon Duncan. We think of Jonathan Masters and many others, O oh Lord, that, that they, O oh Lord, would maintain fidelity to your scripture, that they would proclaim truth, and that as, O oh Lord, they lead these ministries to the church, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would bless them and their families. But we pray, O oh Lord, that the men who come out of these seminaries, that they would come prepared trained and equipped, prepared to preach Christ to a dead and dying world, that all might be saved who are lost. We pray, O oh Lord, for the lost in this world. Use men that you have prepared for gospel ministry to be a way, an outlet, an opportunity for the gospel to be heard to the ends of the earth. We pray that you soften the hearts of our culture even now to receive the truth of the gospel even today. We pray also, O oh Lord, for our own congregation. Make us holy as you are holy, O oh Lord. Create a sense of holiness within our culture of holiness, within our own congregation here. We pray, O oh Lord, for our families. We thank you, O oh Lord, for them, but we pray that our families might be, O oh Lord, a picture of holy corporate worship. May we practice Worship not only within our Sunday worship services, O Lord, but may we see it also emulated within our homes. We pray, O Lord, for our husbands and fathers. We pray that they would take such a task seriously, teaching their children to read the scripture, to pray to you, to sing praises to your name. We pray, O Lord, for the sanctification ministry of our church. Make us holy, O Lord. 
and use our families to that great and awesome end. We also continue, O oh Lord, to lift up Joanne Ostendorf to you. As she has recovered and is now home, we pray, O oh Lord, that you give her strength, that you give her hope, that you give Dan wisdom and encouragement as he cares for his beloved wife. We pray, O oh Lord, that this surgery would be received well within her body. We pray, O oh Lord, for true and quick healing for her, that the long healing that the doctors have proclaimed might be, O oh Lord, but shorter. We also pray, O oh Lord, for all those who are sick and downcast among us as the seasons change, O oh Lord. Many of us have various ailments and sicknesses. We pray, O oh Lord, for those within our congregation who are in constant and chronic pain. We pray, O oh Lord, that that would subside. And even in the midst of difficulty, that, O oh Lord, that you would heighten their senses to your throne and to your kingdom. We pray that as all of us gather here today, whatever, O oh Lord, our frame of mind might be, that all might be set aside, that we might worship the true and living God. Hear our prayers, O Son, uh, who brings to the Father, and we pray all this in his holy name. Amen. pleasure to be with you once again as we have the opportunity to open up God's Word and to study it together. This morning we'll be focusing on the Old Testament lesson from Daniel chapter 2. This particular passage is rich and robust and it tells the same message that we find in many other passages in Scripture. Passages both in other parts of Daniel and other parts of the Old Testament but also throughout the New Testament as well. Daniel 2, as we heard, tells a story <clears throat> excuse me, that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that he wasn't able to interpret. And in some ways, this is a retelling of the Joseph story. You remember the Joseph story that Pharaoh had a dream that he couldn't interpret. And Joseph came and prays, and he is able to interpret the dream for Pharaoh. And Joseph, as a... In, in response to this was elevated to Pharaoh's right hand. That's exactly what we find here with Daniel. Daniel, in this similar role as the interpreter of the dream, is elevated to Nebuchadnezzar's right hand. According to Daniel 2.48, Nebuchadnezzar gave Daniel high honors and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. In some ways, the Bible can be viewed as a kind of grand symphony with many repeating themes and, and variations on a theme. And all these different themes and variations are incorporated into the grand triumphal crescendo, this crescendo that finds all of its ultimate resolution in this story of that one ultimate offspring that was promised to Abraham who in the fullness of time was despised and rejected by his brothers. He was taken captive, not for his own sins, but for ours. And mysteriously, that same one would be elevated not to Pharaoh's right hand or to 
the king of Babylon's right hand, but to the, to the right hand of God, to the seat of all power and authority, where he shall reign forever and ever, world without end. So in our text this morning, Daniel was given the opportunity to both reveal and interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream of this great statue made of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And it was disclosed in that dream that a stone struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them to pieces. Excuse me. And ultimately, this caused the entire statue to collapse. And that same stone which struck the idolatrous image grew to become itself a great mountain that filled the entire earth. Daniel then tells Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold and another inferior kingdom will arise after you, as well as a third kingdom of bronze and a fourth kingdom strong as iron. Yet in the days of the kings of that fourth kingdom, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. What we find here in Daniel 2 fits nicely with some of the things that God revealed to the prophet Jeremiah. For example, in uh, chapter 51, verses 25 and 26, we read, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, which destroys the whole earth. Here, God is speaking about Babylon. And Babylon is represented as a destroying mountain that fills the earth. I will stretch out my hand against you. No stone shall be taken from you for a corner. No stone for a foundation. But you shall be a perpetual waste, declares the Lord. Here, Babylon is described as this expanding mountain that fills the earth but not with life, but with destruction. In the end, however, God sovereignly declares that Babylon itself shall be destroyed. There is no ultimate foundation stone anywhere to be found in this kingdom. In fact, this is the sad reality of all our kingdoms, all earthly buildings and towers, all our prized institutions and our networks and our our goals. They're not eternal. They are destined, in the end, to fade away. Now, in Daniel's vision, the king of Babylon was replaced by these, the kingdom of Babylon, that is, was replaced by these inferior kingdoms represented by the metals of silver, bronze, and iron. And almost all commentators are in agreement about this, that these refer to the successive kingdoms of Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. The final kingdom, represented by the rock cut by no human hands, which grew to become a great mountain, filled the earth. This is the very thing Jesus spoke of in the days of Tiberius Caesar when he came announcing the good news of his kingdom, which is a kingdom that would never be destroyed. Many scholars have pointed out that what Daniel says here in chapter 2 is parallel to what he says later in chapter 7 of his uh, prophecy. Though the imagery is different, the message is the same. You see, in Daniel 7, the prophet describes four great beasts that come up out of the sea. And in verse 17 of that chapter, we're told that these represent different successive kingdoms. In verse 23, it says specifically, 
The fourth beast represents the fourth kingdom that shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth. This kingdom, this beast, rather, has ten horns, which are explained to represent the ten kings of that latter kingdom. But this kingdom, as with all the kingdoms of the world, will not endure, just like Babylon. It's destined for destruction. In verses 13 and 14 of Daniel 7, we're told that, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that, with all, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve. His dominion is an eternal dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. Verse 27 says, The kingdom and dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdoms. All dominions shall serve and obey him. The saints, we're told in this part of Daniel's prophecy, don't earn their way into this kingdom. It's not something they build. It's a gift given to them. The saints will be given the kingdom by the Most High. And that's precisely what we find Jesus himself saying in Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Daniel Boyarin is a fascinating scholar who writes about this chapter, Daniel 7, in his book, The Jewish Gospels. He's, Boyarin is the professor of Talmud at the University of Berkeley. And commenting on this chapter, he says, in this remarkable text, there are actually two divine figures. One is depicted as the Ancient of Days, sitting on the throne, and a second divine figure who is like a human being and who will have an eternal dominion is there approaching the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man character. And listing the characteristics of the Son of Man, Boyarin says he is divine, he's in human form. He may very well be Portrayed as a younger appearing divinity than the Ancient of Days, he will be enthroned on high and he's given power and dominion. And then Boyarin concludes his summary of this by saying this, all these are characteristics of Jesus as he's presented in the Gospels. It is no wonder then that many Jews believed he was precisely the one they were expecting. Some Jews had been expecting this Redeemer to be a human exalted to the status of divinity, while others were expecting a divinity to come down to earth to take on human form. But either way, we end up with a double Godhead and a human-divine combination as the expected Redeemer. In short, the Messiah existed as a Jewish idea long before the baby Jesus of Nazareth was born. That is, the idea of a second God as a viceroy to God the Father is one of the oldest ideas in Israel. And the theology of the Gospels, far from being a radical innovation, is a highly conservative return, he says, to the very ancient, the most ancient moments within that tradition. You know, we might disagree with some of the things he says in there, but that's interesting that he's talking about ancient Jewish belief before the time of Jesus was expecting this kind of a, this kind of a, of a, of a view of God, the ancient of days with the Son of Man, two, two different, how do we reconcile this? Is, are there two gods? Is it one? We're monotheists. And he talks about that struggle in the ancient Jewish world with texts such as these. But as it turns out, 
this view that Daniel was presenting was not an innovation in Israel because 500 years earlier, the people of Israel sang psalms that had the same view. For example, in Psalm 45, we read, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You have loved righteousness and hate wickedness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. That sounds strange to you. I assure you that it's even stranger than the original Hebrew. There are actually two, literally two Elohims in this passage. One is the Elohim who is being anointed, and the other is the Elohim who is doing the anointing. It's mysterious. We find similar language in Psalm 110, where David says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Psalm 110 is one of the most frequently cited Old Testament passages in all the New Testament. And in fact, Jesus himself quotes from this same psalm not long after he tells the parable of the wicked tenants, the one we heard this morning from Luke chapter 20. In verse 41 of that chapter, Jesus asks those standing near, how can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him. Psalm 110 proclaims the same message we've been studying, we've been exploring from the book of Daniel. Listen, for example, to verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 110. Speaking of the coming divine Messiah, <clears throat> David says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will ex execute judgment among the nations. Jesus, you see, is this mysterious figure who is both David's son and his Lord. He is the Son of Man who appears before the Ancient of Days to receive an eternal kingdom. He's the rock cut by no human hand that shatters the kingdoms of this world and becomes itself a great mountain that fills the entire world. His dominion is an eternal dominion. It's an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom shall never be destroyed. As I mentioned earlier, I believe that Daniel 7 is essentially describing the same reality that we see in Daniel chapter 2, but with different imagery. So the four beasts that come up out of the, out of the sea are basically analogous to the four metals in that idolatrous statue. Both chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 7, refer to the four great empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and finally Rome. Babylon has fallen. Medo-Persia is gone. Greece and Rome are no more. But the kingdom of Christ is still going strong, which is why all of us are gathered here this morning. We are here this morning in the embassy of grace, the outpost of heaven. His kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says. But this is an outpost, an embassy of that kingdom. And we have been incorporated into it. 
Too often, I think, when we turn on the news, we're tempted to think that that's the real world. All the corrupt politicians who are continuing, continually vying for power, that's the really important stuff. No, the kingdoms of this world come and go. And all the scheming and the striving, it's just part of this passing evil age. All the kingdoms of this world are destined for destruction. Our ultimate citizenship is from heaven. It's from heaven. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says. And his kingdom continually advances. It's been advancing for the last 2,000 years. And it will never be destroyed. According to Daniel, the foundation of this everlasting kingdom was described as a stone that's cut by no human hand. In other words, it's, it's completely the work of God. This isn't something any of us can build by our own ingenuity. It's not another Tower of Babel, but something that God graciously and, uh, creates and sustains down to the present day. And the gates of hell simply cannot withstand its advance. Daniel's prophecy of the stone that becomes this mountain which fills the whole earth is similar to something we find in Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah says, It shall come to pass in the latter days, again, latter days often refers to the latter days from the prophet's perspective, not ours. And often that latter day language comes, points to the days of the inauguration of the, king, the Messiah's kingdom. In the latter days... The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Just as in Daniel chapter 2, we find here in Isaiah 2, a mountain that grows to become a, the highest peak in which all the people of the earth begin to flow. But in Isaiah's vision, the peak is actually called the mountain of the house of the Lord. In other words, the mountain that expands to encompass the whole earth is actually Mount Zion, the Temple Mount. Now, are, are we to expect a literal increasing-sized mountain? Or is, are these symbolic words that actually depict the Messianic age? People sometimes get confused because that imagery, the imagery is so vivid, they sometimes over-literalize the text. But I think when we compare this scripture with others and we compare metaphors, it begins to, the picture begins to be clear. <clears throat> Additional information is given to us by Isaiah in chapter 8 of his prophecy. The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken, Isaiah says. Do you see, this prophecy was written during a time of great unfaithfulness in the land. And both the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel were, were, had great idolatry, which is why the Assyrians were allowed to invade and even to circle Jerusalem itself. But in the midst of that crisis, Yahweh declared that he will become a sanctuary, a rock of stumbling upon, many, upon which many will fall and be broken. <clears throat> now Daniel's image of a stone that destroyed the great statue 
that great idolatrous statue representing all the kingdoms of this world, all the great empires. It fits nicely with this imagery from, that we have from all these different passages of Scripture, all the Psalms and the various parts of Daniel and Isaiah. And Psalm 2 is another great place for us to consider this morning. In the beginning of Psalm 2, we're told that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. See, there's the, that expansion. All the nations will become your heritage, the Messiah's heritage. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's the image of Daniel 2. The stone cut from no human hands, dashing the great empires and becoming its own kingdom that will fill the earth. Therefore, kings, be wise. Kiss the sun, Psalm 2 ends, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You know, it's interesting that on many of the coins in the ancient world, uh, coins of Caesar Augustus, you find the inscription uh, there on the coins which says, Divi Filius, which essentially in Latin means son of a god. I mean, Augustus may have been a son of a gun, but a son of a god, that's, that's kind of a stretch, right? <clears throat> but essentially, <clears throat> what happened was Julius Caesar was elevated to divine status after his death. That's how it worked back then. The Senate voted it. It must be the case, right? And yet, in the days of this Divi Philus, Augustus, the son of God, Jesus was born. Jesus, the true son of God who was born in an obscure town in the province of, of Israel. And he is the true fulfillment, though, of Psalm 2. He is the anointed one of Yahweh, the true divine son, who has been given the ends of the earth as his possession. And how does he accomplish that? Well, he does it by shattering all rival powers, just as Daniel declared in his prophecy. It's not achieved, though, by the power of the sword, but by the power of the proclamation of that word above all earthly powers. In Isaiah 27, 6, we're told that in the days to come, Jacob shall take root, and Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots that will fill the whole world with fruit. It's the same story. It's the same prophecy, different imagery. Whereas Daniel used the image of a great mountain that fills the entire earth, Isaiah uses horticultural imagery and speaks of this great tree that fills the world with fruit. In his day, in the day of Messiah, the prophet went on to say in chapter 28, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory <clears throat> and a great diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then, he says, your covenant with death shall be annulled. Are you, uh, are you longing for the day in which true justice will reign 
and ultimate righteousness will be the plumb line? Are you looking forward to the day in which the web of lies that is continually being spun by today's politicians and media professionals gets swept away? If so, then like me, then you're just going to be continually disappointed with all the kingdoms of this world and its leaders. This is not to say that you should not be concerned about the city of man. We're dual citizens. We should work for the, the good of the city and pray for our leaders as we have been doing this morning. But we just need to realize that all these things are temporal and not ultimate. None of our earthly rulers can usher in the millennium or annul our covenant with death. No, this is the sphere of Christ alone, the stone cut by no human hands, and his kingdom is an eternal kingdom that will never be destroyed, and his kingdom will destroy all rival kingdoms. Consider again this line from Isaiah 28, 16. Thus says the Lord God, I am the one who has laid a foundation stone in Zion, a stone tested and precious, a cornerstone of sure foundation. Once again, the imagery of Isaiah and Daniel intersect since both prophets ended up speaking of a foundational stone out of which or upon which God's eternal kingdom will expand and begin to fill the whole earth. This also happens to be the imagery we find in Psalm 118. And that's, interestingly enough, the psalm that you may be familiar with because uh, it may have been recited in your service a few weeks ago as you were thinking about Palm Sunday. It's the very psalm on the lips of the residents of Jerusalem as they're hailing Jesus who came in in, during his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But it also happens to be the psalm that Jesus quotes at the very end of the parable of the wicked tenants from Luke 20. So before we take a look at that New Testament lesson more closely, just let's think about some of the lines from Psalm 118. In verse 19 of that psalm, the psalmist prays this, Open for me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, that the righteous shall enter through it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The gates of righteousness, you see, were not opened by the psalmist himself. Instead, he believed it was something that needed to be opened for him. And this is precisely Jesus' point in John 10 when he says, He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. He's the one that opens the gate. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls the sheep by his name and leads them out. Truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Later in John 14, 16, Jesus went on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. This is, of course, an offensive message. He's a stone of offense, and it's an offensive message, particularly in our day of religious pluralism. But it was no less offensive in Jesus' own day, for as we find throughout the Gospels, many who heard Jesus speak were offended by his teaching, and they were incensed by the things he said. What's particularly astonishing is the fact that Israel's prophets not only announced the Messiah's coming, but they also announced that he would be despised and rejected as well. It's astonishing. That's the same point that's being made here by the author of Psalm 118. 
which says that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's rejected by the builders. This is amazing that we find Jesus and his kingdom inaugurated, but partly through the, this idea of rejection. Not all of his people, especially the leaders there in Jerusalem, did not accept his messiahship. They rejected him, which is why he ended up being sent out east of, uh, sent away outside the camp and rejected and put to death. So now let's take a look at the text of our New Testament lesson. If you have your Bible, take a look at uh, Luke chapter 20, and where Jesus tells this parable in which the people of Israel are presented as tenants of a vineyard who refuse to give the owner his rightful share of the fruit. This, of course, is a picture of the history of Israel, and God is the one, Isaiah 5 comes to mind, God is the one who plants the vineyard, and it grows, but it doesn't produce good fruit. It's producing bad fruit. That's one of the images that's behind this parable. And so in this particular parable, God is sending fruit. Uh, he's sending servants, basically the prophets, to collect the fruit, the God's share. He's the owner of the vineyard. And what happens is they are themselves mistreated. They, uh, they end up um, persecuting the prophets. All the prophets were persecuted. Many of them put to death. So the owner of the vineyard says, I will send my son. And they did the same with the son, but they, they threw him out of the vineyard and they put him to death. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them, we find Jesus summing up this with a question. What will the owner do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. Verse 17, but he looked directly at them and quoted the words, of Psalm 118 saying, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the foundational stone, the most important stone in the architecture of this new building. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces when it falls on anyone and it will crush him. What is astonishing is how Jesus' words here at the end of this parable end up tying in with the message of Daniel 2. You see, the stone cut by no human hands, which is destined to shatter all the kingdoms of this world, is here described as Israel's cornerstone. Not only is this stone destined to destroy all forms of idolatrous pagan rule, but this same stone has been appointed for the rising and falling of many within Israel. This stone, when it falls on anyone, whether the Babylonians or the Medo-Persians or the, Greece, the Grecians or the Romans or those residents of Judea who were worshiping idols. Wherever the stone falls, it will crush. Jesus, you see, is the stone that the builders rejected. According to Isaiah 53, he was the despised and rejected one, the suffering servant. And this is the one who, because he was despised and rejected, bore our iniquities. But according to Isaiah, this despised and rejected one also ends up being highly exalted. This story is marvelous in our eyes, just as it was in the author of Psalm 118. It's marvelous in our eyes because he is the ultimate cornerstone of an entirely new kind of sanctuary. Remember that conversation in John 4 with the woman at the well? 
our, the people uh, will no longer worship in, on this mountain or that. But a day is coming, it is now here, when they will worship in spirit and in truth. Because it's not a physical temple any longer. We are being incorporated into this international temple that is no longer located in a particular place. It's filling the, the entire earth, just as Daniel predicted. Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to all those who are intent on building their own kingdoms. So whether you are Persian, Babylonian, Greek, or Roman, Judean, American, if you find yourself on the wrong side of the stone, you will be crushed. But if in meekness you receive this kingdom as a gift, then this same cornerstone will become for you the foundation stone of the true eternal city. He is the cornerstone of this new international temple that he is continuing to build even to this present day. Again, that's why we're here. We're here to worship and honor this king, the risen king, the exalted king, who was despised and rejected, but now reigns triumphant. There's one more passage that I'd like to read to you from the book of Daniel, or summarize anyway, from the book of Daniel, that I think is relevant here for us to discuss this morning, and that's Daniel chapter 9, which is this fascinating chapter where Daniel has this long prayer, a prayer of confession representing the people and their sin. And after his confession, the angel Gabriel comes and announces things to come in the latter days of Israel's reign. And without going into all the details about the meaning of the symbols and the language, the 77s, and all the other things that happen in this chapter, what I'd like to highlight is what happens in chapter, uh, in verse 24 and 25 of Daniel 9 because it relates to the coming of the Messiah. He is this anointed prince who will put an end to sin and atone for iniquity. He will bring in everlasting righteousness and seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, it's the end of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New Covenant. But in verse 26 of Daniel 9, we're told that of this coming Messianic prince, that he will be cut off, which also happens to be the same language we find applied to the to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He's cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of our people, of the people. According to Daniel 9, after, Dan after Israel's anointed prince is cut off, another prince then comes into view. This is the prince of the people who comes to destroy the city and sanctuary. In other words, this is a political leader. This is Titus, actually. The prince of the people who comes to destroy the city and sanctuary. In other words, so Daniel is predicting not only that the Messiah would come and do the things he's, that are written of him, but it's also describing the timing. The Messiah would come in the days of that fourth kingdom, the kingdom of iron, the Roman Empire, and he would be cut off for the iniquity of his people, and sometime after this, the city and sanctuary would be destroyed. In the days of those Roman kings who proclaimed themselves gods. You remember, if you know your Roman history, there was kingdom, kingship was abolished for 700-something years. And then it was revived. Emperorship was, suddenly began to be revived. And that's the, the time that, the, the, that our great king, the king of kings, came on the scene. Just as this, the Roman kingship was being revived, as Daniel had prophesied, they are proclaiming themselves gods. And the true God of heaven did indeed set up a kingdom in those days that would never be destroyed. This kingdom is still expanding 
to this day. The power of Egypt was humiliated in the time of Moses. And Babylon, where is it now? Persia, Greece, where are these emperors, empires today? Whatever happened to Rome? Gibbon talks about the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. It's gone. All these powers have been shattered by the stone cut by no human hands. This stone is the sacred cornerstone of the new living temple to which all of us have been incorporated as living stones. And that's a phrase that actually comes from Peter because Peter used this imagery to describe us. We are living stones that are being built into this new eternal international temple. And in the very place where Peter discusses this in his, I think, chapter 2 of his first epistle, the very place where he mentions this, he quotes and interacts with three Old Testament passages, the ones we've been mentioning this morning, from Psalm 118 and from Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28. And if you think about it, the architectural imagery there of this great international temple that's being built of which we are living stones, that architectural metaphor is the same thing expressed in other places in the New Testament with different imagery. So Paul will say that Christ is the head of the church and we are members of his body. And each member has different, you know, functions, right? So there's the foot and the hand, all that stuff. But that's the metaphor. It's a bodily metaphor. And Jesus himself gives the metaphor of the vine. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. John 15. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Martin Luther once commented, commented on that part of John 15 where Jesus talks about him being the vine, us being the branches, and apart from him we can do nothing. He says, that nothing is not a little something. It's brilliant, right? As we've seen this morning, the great stone of Daniel chapter 2 has been appointed to shatter all Babylonian towers, all idolatrous kingdoms. In fact, it's been appointed to crush even those within Israel who reject Yahweh's gracious and everlasting reign. Don't make that tragic mistake. Don't show up at the wedding banquet dressed in your own filthy rags, attempting to remind God of all the good work you've done, all the things you've built. No, instead, remember the words of David, who said in Psalm 110 of the Messiah, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Brothers and sisters, are you tired of failed political promises? Do you find yourselves continually disappointed by congressmen, senators, and presidents who never seem to deliver the goods? And put not your trust in princes. Put not your trust in earthly kings and kingdoms, but instead place your trust in the precious cornerstone, the stone cut by no human hands, the one elevated to the hand, the right hand of all power and authority. Put your trust in David's son and David's Lord, in Christ, the conqueror of death and hell, the one who annuls our covenant with death. All the kingdoms of this world will ultimately fail but don't lose heart. 
because our ultimate citizenship is in heaven and Jesus has conquered. Jesus has prevailed. The new Jerusalem is our eternal home. There are a lot of shiny objects that can easily distract us from that word above all earthly powers. But at the end of the day, what does the world have to offer compared with the gospel of Jesus? The good news of his, how long has it been since he came? 2,000 years? It's still growing. It's still expanding. And when you think about all the corruption that you see, I mean, why are you so preoccupied with it? I'm asking myself this question. All the tottering kingdoms of this world, you know, they're, they're continually vying for power and they're scheming. Why are we shocked by political scandal? Power corrupts. That's just the way it is and it's the way it's always been. And it's why all earthly powers are destined for the great cosmic trash heap at the end of history. Beloved, we serve a king who is unlike any ruler who has ever been born. Though he was in the form of God, this gracious king did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. This is the stone that was rejected that became the cornerstone. This is the stone that will shatter all rival kingdoms and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Though he's a stumbling block to many, to us he is the foundation stone of the eternal city, the heavenly Jerusalem. Therefore, if you have been united to him by faith and clothed with his righteousness, then offer yourselves to him freely this day and forevermore. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for incorporating us into your gracious kingdom. Though in Adam all of us deserve to be sent away from your presence, in your great mercy you intervened and sent us a rescuer, the God-man, Jesus Christ, our true prince of peace. And so we pray that you would grant us ever-increasing faith, that we may trust only in him and the kingdom that he alone is building, and in that and that in response we may offer true worship with thankful hearts to the end that we may give ourselves to his service until that day when he calls us to enter that forever kingdom which he has purchased for us with his own blood. We pray this in his name. Amen.